The reading today is from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they had entered the city, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. All these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer, together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as all his brothers. This is the word of the Lord. There's a popular story that many of us live by. It goes like this. If only they were not in charge. There's a sequel to that story that many of us live by. If only we were in charge. The tagline to both stories is something like this. Then things would be much better. That's the story that Fox News tells every day. It's the story that MSNBC tells every day. It's the story of political pundits and parties. It's the story that we tell at work around the water cooler. Do you guys remember the heartbreak of the Falcons' loss in this year's Super Bowl? Yeah, I don't need to remind you. We just got out of that cloud and fog, didn't we? The day after the Super Bowl, I remember working from home. If you were lucky enough to, you did, because everyone in Atlanta felt the gloom of it all. I decided unwisely to turn on sports radio just to see what the fellows were saying. They were announcing the end of the world. <laughs> One of their fans called in and said, if I were the coach, we would have won the Super Bowl. <laughs> oh, yeah, what would you have done differently? said one of the hosts. Well, everybody knows, like I knew, and I was screaming at the TV, that you don't throw the football, you run the football, you run the football, and then you kick the field goal, take the points. I mean, even some of you are nodding your head because you know the caller's correct. Maybe some of you were saying the same thing. If only I were in charge, it would be better. It's part of human nature to assume that we know the best way forward and to question others especially when you're not sitting in that hard spot called leadership. It's easier for us to say, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't say that. I would do this or say that instead. Oh, we know that we could do things better than the way they're done under the status quo. It's easy in the cheap seats, isn't it? What I'm describing really, though, is not about leadership so much as it's about the logic of empire building 
Empires indeed are built on the notion that there is at least one group of people who know how best to do this thing called life better than other groups of people, and they take it upon themselves to, well, invite other people into that way of life by force. This really is the moral past that empires give themselves when they take land from other people or when they plant flags in soil that doesn't belong to them or when they enforce new customs upon people who don't share those perceived customs. Did you know that the New Testament was written during a time of empire, Roman empire to be precise? And so it's the Roman Empire that is the geopolitical situation that the early church was not only born into, but it was also the crucible that forced and shaped it to look the way it ended up looking. Consider, if you will, some of the notions of the Roman Empire. It said that it provided a peace more than the others could. The others, of course, they called barbarians. And so they promoted and were proud of their Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Citizenship to the Roman Empire was something that was incredibly prized above all other things. It gave rights and privileges, and it was something that you wanted to hang on to. If you don't believe me, just ask St. Paul himself, for he claimed his Roman citizenship many times over because he knew that it afforded him a great deal of culture and privilege. All roads lead to Rome. It's a worldview statement centralizing the city of Rome in the center of the entire universe. What's more, the Roman emperor sat upon a throne, and he wasn't just a king. He was a divine king to be adhered to and listened to at all cost. The Roman empire logic made it possible to dispossess people groups, to enslave classes of people, to occupy lands, and to discard cultures. Simply, they knew that their way of life was better than other people's. It was thus a predominant problem for Christian life. For the early church claimed one Lord, Christ. Claimed one government, God's kingdom. And said that there was a new culture, a new way of life that needed to be adhered to. And it belonged not to Caesar, not to Rome, but to God's own life. Christianity was then always at odds with the the empire And it has never been kind to the kind of thinking that's associated with it, be it nationalism or colonialism, imperialism, slavery, land theft, political imposition by force. Did you know that in the early church, specifically the first three centuries of the early church, the Christians were very upset with people who were in the church, maybe they were Roman converts, who would enlist in the empire's army. In fact, even if you were forced to be in the empire's army and went to war on behalf of the empire, and unfortunately went to battle and killed someone, the church said no to you for three years' time at the table for the sake of penance. See, the church has always been at odds with an empire mentality. That is to say, with any mentality that says that there is another sovereign above God or another way of life that can compete with the kingdom of God. For all of these reasons, our text is incredibly interesting today. It begins with the disciples. They have audience with their one Lord, Christ Jesus. 
It's a post-resurrection audience and a pre-ascension audience with Jesus. And I find that the conversation is filled with a great deal of irony. You see, they cannot get beyond this story that we want to tell. If only we were in charge, if only they weren't, things would be better. Because they want to know something. They want to know Jesus. We've been following you. We've been hearing about your kingdom. But when will it finally and fully be here? When can we expect your kingdom? Read empire here. When can we expect your empire to come in, in place? When will we have all the rights and privileges and power and authority afforded to us that, that we can, you know, rule the way, you know, you want us to? Ever dubious of empire thinking. They know that empires aren't good, yet they do assume because they've got Jesus on their side that their form of empire would be at least better than the Roman one. Empires are not good, they know, but they tell that story. If only we were in charge, things would be better. I have stories about politicians and political cycles, but I won't throw them out there to hurt your feelings today. I will simply say that every president that I've ever seen run for office has told a similar story, and so have their followers. My question is, but is it ever the case? Is it ever the case that when one side wins a victory over another, that all wrongs are put right? Has it ever been the case that any one human leader has been able to right the ship? Has it ever been the case that there have been human problems erased in total because of one side winning and one side losing? Well, forget the lack of evidence for those things for the moment and look specifically to how Jesus responds to his disciples and their uber-patriotic notions for his kingdom, he says, okay, listen up, friends. You will receive power. Power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you're going to receive authority too. Authority when you're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. But it won't look like what you think it will look like. It won't be the power of empire or nationalism or statism, and it won't have the power of the free market. It won't be a power like any of it. The power that can only come by the Holy Spirit will make the disciples into something different. It will make them not emperors, but witnesses. The authority given to them is not of empire, but to be witnesses. First, they will be called to be witnesses in their own neighborhood, Jerusalem, and then in the surrounding areas, Judea and Samaria. And then finally, that witness will take itself all the way to the inner heart of the Roman Empire, to Rome itself, to what Acts calls the very edges of the world. This is the outline that the book of Acts follows as the Holy Spirit goes with the people of God as witnesses for Jesus all over the place. Do you remember when Facebook hit the scene? Most of you don't. Facebook, as most of us now know, was started by a guy named Mark Zuckerberg at Harvard. And it began to make a big splash on that campus. Very insular and localized or provincial. And then the concept of Facebook, we called it the Facebook back then, 
spread to other elite universities nearby. It kind of spread to other regions just like it, but a little different, to Stanford across the country, to Yale and Princeton. I remember when I was in the far reaches of the hope for Facebook, you had to have a university account to get it. I didn't have one. I was out of college, but I still dated a gal in college. And she got a hold of one of these accounts. It was going university to university, college to college. She set up my very first Facebook account. It spreads like that, just like the kingdom of God. One province after another. And Facebook has made it to the heart of Rome. Do you know how I know? Because the average user of Facebook is a middle-aged woman with grandkids and puppy dog videos. It has gone to the very heart of our society. It's something like that in how the gospel spreads through the witnesses and testimony of people who are excited about it, who it's made a difference for in their lives. In short, friends, the disciples gain an identity and a calling in this moment, and it's so startling. The news leads the disciples together in some modest upper room, 10 or 15 of them. We don't know the full number. And all they can do in this moment of change is pray. It wasn't but more than a year ago that the church here at Peachtree was voting on me to be your senior minister. We were at a board meeting downstairs in Burns Hall. I had never seen one of our board meetings so full of people. And I was told, when we get to this part in the agenda, why don't you and your wife slip out of here and then later we'll get to the item at hand. We'll vote on you. We'll text you to call you back down. That's still nerve-wracking, you know? So we came upstairs, and we sat over here on this side of the sanctuary in a pew holding hands, kind of shaking, praying out God, loud to God, because you sit there and say to yourself, maybe this change is really going to happen. Maybe this calling is really going to be cemented today. And there's no other wise thing to do except for to quiet the mind and open your mind only to God in prayer. Where do we go from here? My question this morning, and as I encounter this text, is was it disappointing to the disciples? It would, or it seems to me, have been much easier if there were a strong physical image-saturated empire of Christ. If Christ rolled in on Roman streets in tanks, and he went into the Caesar's palace and kicked king off the throne and mounted it himself and said, I'm in charge. Wouldn't it be easier to spread the good news, the story of God across the Roman Empire if Jesus had simply done that? The disciples might have thought otherwise too. They might have said, if only, if only we know, knew that the line of Herod, our puppet king, was soon to be truncated and he was to be kicked out of the house. Well, maybe, just maybe, it would be much easier for us to convince our family and our friends and our brothers and sisters that Jesus is the Messiah. Friends, the allure to empire thinking is strong. It's romantic, but alas, no. No to all of it. Neither the first disciples nor for us disciples of today are given this sort of divinely ordained power over other people. The power given in lieu of it, though, is to be witnesses. 
What does it mean to be a witness for Christ? I have a few responses to that. On the one hand, it means that we become storytellers, learning to share our story of encounter with God. On the other hand, it means that we continue to grow in how we live differently in the world, you know? In a way that the world is left scratching its head going, why do they do this and not do that? It means that we need to open ourselves to the possibility of being mocked, persecuted, and even martyred. I have a friend named Steve. He's a theology professor. And we went out to eat. Our spouses were on one side of the table, and we were on the other. We were having a conversation about this thing or that. And Colleen was having a talk with his wife, Vili, from Albania. She was an enchanting woman who grew up under the communist atheist regime there. I wasn't trying to drop eaves on their conversation, but through listening loud enough and having our own conversation, I heard her say this phrase, and then the persecution began. I said, Steve, pardon me, I need to find out what's going on here. Excuse me, what did you say? The persecution? My wife Colleen says, oh, we're just discussing how Billy became a Christian. And I said, stop, start over, let's go. I was curious about this phrase, persecution began. She said that when she was growing up, she knew nothing really of God. Isn't it strange to not really know even much of that concept? She said she really came to terms with the concept of God with a group of friends as they read a Michael Jackson autobiography. In Michael Jackson's biography, there was a character named God, and her and her friends really didn't know much about this God. So they began investigating some of her friends decided they would go to a certain level of depth of question asking, and it led them into some of these small little underground churches, and there they met Christ. Vili was kind of upset because she or cognitively didn't believe in Christ or God, but also she was uh, set off by how bizarre her friends were acting in these kind of what she perceived to be fundamentalist groups. So she wanted to disprove her friends she knew that somewhere in her family line there was a time when everyone was Christian before the regime. So she went into an old storage bin and, and found an old dusty Bible and pulled it out. You know, the kind of Bible that's meant for the family to be passed down. You don't really read it very often. It sits there and it looks pretty. She opened it up. And in her room one night, she began reading St. John's Gospel. And she poured over the words in the words of John Wesley, her heart was strangely warmed. She had a divine encounter that night. She even reports seeing something of a vision. She didn't want to try to prove any of it to me. All she said simply was she was convinced of Christ. And then she said to me, and then the persecution began. I said, now hold on a second, Billy. What do you mean? And the persecution began. She goes, well, it's an atheist country. They do things to Christians where I'm from. I go, I know. I know that. But what do you mean? And it began. Like, how did anybody know to target you, to persecute you? She said, well, I was a Christian. I had to tell people about it. Fascinating. She had become a witness to Christ. She began writing about it in papers on philosophy and history and flunking because of it. 
Teachers and people in her class started saying things against her because of her testimony, because of her witness for Jesus. Her neighbors stopped talking to her, mocking her sometimes. They even threw stones at her in the street because she wouldn't stop from witnessing, from testifying, from telling the story that she had in her own heart when she encountered Christ. Friends, ours is simply, frankly, a temptation to empire even if we call it a Christian one, we think it'd be better if we elected the right person. We think it'd be best if all our ideas and morals were legislated. But our one true sovereign Christ never promised to us that we would have any power like this. All that we are promised is that we would have the power to be witnesses, that we'd have the authority to be storytellers, that we would share the hope we have that we would live the hope we have, that we would live our stories to make the world around us better, to shape our small circles of influence. It's really the only social hope you've got going. Jesus is the hope for the world, and for us to get on board is simply to be witnesses to his glory, his grace, and his new world. Friends, I want to challenge us all this morning not to wait for an elected official. Don't be too excited about the state or market's support of what we consider to be Christian things. Don't hang your hat on some new movie, on some radio station, or the next new book. Don't put your hope in charismatic clergy people to do all the heavy lifting. Know that the Holy Spirit, if you're a disciple of God, has come upon you to give you real power and authority to be a witness. You know, we don't realize that the most potent weapon any one of us ever has is that of a story. If you've got nothing else, you've got the story. You have great power because you've got a story about how Christ has made a difference in your heart. Go forth from here with the power of your story and be a witness to Christ. No matter which way the arrows come, no matter where the pressures are, be a witness for Christ. God bless you.